Uh, bless the Lord. We're uh, preparing for the next um, semester of small groups, so I've been talking about community the last few weeks, and I think in some rather thought-provoking ways. Uh, but I think we, we must, out of personal necessity, come to this question. Where am I at? Where am I at? And in relation to what? Traditionally, the church has answered that question by use of what is called a bounded set. You see that on the screen. Looks like that. Bounded set. Essentially, you're either in or out. If you dress like us, talk like us, act like us, do what we do, accept or reject the same things that we do, then you're in. And if not, then you're out. And that can get pretty bizarre in its extremes sometimes. I remember when I, uh, fairly newly saved and certainly new to the things of the Holy Spirit, I had uh, gotten saved in Florida, returned to Massachusetts, and got involved with a oneness, holiness, Pentecostal missionary church plant uh, in Boston trying to introduce the power of the Holy Spirit to Harvard Divinity School. Now, put all that together in your imagination, and uh, it was pretty strange. Um, The women had to wear sleeves down to the wrist, up to the neck, And if their ankles showed at all, that was questionable. And they could never cut their hair and always had to wear it in a bun. You know, one of those beehive things. I tried it and look at it. Just made a mess. (laughs) And, you know, if you were willing to do all of that, you could be part of that group. But if you were not willing, and it's always interesting to me, there were really no rules for the guys. <laughs> I mean, what's up with that, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the bounded set, stuff like that. In the vineyard, we've simplified the process through the use of what is called a centered set. Jesus is at the center, and each of us is at some point of relationship to him. There is no in or out. There is only proximity. And the closer you become to him, the more invested you will be in the church and the life of the community. The whole idea is, listen, come on in. Come on in and, you know, See if you bump into Jesus. I can remember my daughter Sarah uh, coming up to me one Sunday, uh, kind of at the break time, and getting up real close and saying, Hey, Dad, do you know who that is? And I said, Yeah. No, no, no. Do you really know who that is? I said, Yeah. What's he doing here? Do you think he ought to be here? I mean, he's a real violent guy. He said, Yeah. Well, why? I says, because if he bumps into Jesus, 
He's going to change. And he bumped into Jesus, and he changed. And that's the way the kingdom works. Yo, but if you've got a if you've got a barrier, if you've got a boundary, I would have to say to that individual, you can't come in here. Your lifestyle doesn't fit our lifestyle. You know, the way you talk doesn't fit the way we talk and the way you do your hair. I mean, you're not bald like me. You know. Winston's, I took Winston in in a second. <laughs> He's a great guy. Love that hairdo. <laughs> in Luke 6, verse 12, it says, And it happened in those days that he, that is Jesus, went out into a mountain to pray, and he was spending the night in prayer to God. When it was day, he called his disciples And he chose 12 of them, who he also named apostles. It was Simon, who he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a betrayer. Do you think Jesus knew up front Judas was a betrayer? Hmm. And coming down with them, he stood on a level place, and a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their disease were there also those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power went out of him and healed them all. So here, just in these few verses... What we discover are four distinct groups of people. Jesus is at the center. It's surrounding the life and activities of Jesus. And the question is, you know, where am I situated in all of this? Where do I fit in with Jesus at the center? Which group am I a part of? There were great multitudes and multitudes. In Matthew 4.23, it says, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, those which were lunatic, which we've got a few here, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Great multitudes from all over the place. And uh, just, just in case you don't understand, Decapolis is not a place. Decapolis is a district of ten Roman cities set up throughout Israel, throughout Syria, and what today would be Jordan. And it was a, essentially a system of free trade cities. Part of what Rome was doing was they were Hellenizing, the Hellenistic belief, Greco-Roman Hellenistic belief, the introduction of their system of gods and all of this stuff. They were trying to introduce that into all the lands they conquered. Now, you could be any religion you wanted, 
but they're still inculcating you with this other stuff. And the way they did that was to establish a series of cities for free trade. So if you wanted to buy something from Europe or the other side of the world or spices from India, you'd go to one of these free trade cities and being there, doing your business, you'd be uh, bombarded with Hellenistic belief and exposed to the things of uh, Greco-Roman architecture and their temples and all of this stuff would just inundate your, you. And this was called the Decapolis, these 10 cities. Deca means 10, Decapolis cities. So 10 cities surrounding all of Israel. And so here are these Romans, Greeks, Europeans, Asians. They're, they're doing business in these cities but all of a sudden, Jesus is on the scene. All of a sudden, Jesus is centered down in the Galilee, and these people are coming out of the Decapolis. They've heard the news. They've heard the reports, and they're being drawn out of the world that they've been living in all of their lives to find out about this guy, Jesus. See, It's a center set, and the center set attracts the whole world. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Listen, he doesn't just draw us. He draws the person you're worrying about. You parents who have teenage kids and you worry about that boy your daughter is dating. I remember dealing with a family a number of years ago. The daughter had met a young man in college and he was not a Christian, and mom was bouncing off the wall. And I got to tell you, this young man is a godly man now. Married that young girl. They have a wonderful family, great career. He's serving the Lord in the military, and it's just an awesome, awesome thing because Jesus was lifted up. God can do awesome things, even in Decapolis. Matthew 14 says, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place. The time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they said to him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, took the five loaves and the two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed it and he broke it and he gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men plus women and children. So when, when you read in the scriptures, there was a multitude that followed him. Now, think of it this way. You've got 5,000 guys. If each guy has a wife, now you're at 10,000. 2.5 kids, right? You're now at 22,500 people following Jesus around. So the average multitude that followed Jesus was about 30,000 people. So you're living in Laconia. And you get up one morning and you step out the front door. There are 30,000 people in Laconia. You start to walk down the street and every person in Laconia comes out of their house and begins to follow you. 
That's what Jesus experienced. That's what it was like for Jesus and the multitudes. And his disciples are saying, send them away. (laughs) What are you, crazy? Feed them. Matthew 15, 29, Jesus departed from there and came to the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. Great multitudes came to him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered. When they saw the dumb to speak and the maimed to be made whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified all of these people from the Decapolis, from Syria, from Europe, from Asia. When they saw what Jesus was doing, they began to glorify the God of Israel. The scriptures aren't talking about a group of Jews, 20 or 30 Jews, following their rabbi around. This is not the dust of the rabbi. This is 30,000 people, and most of them are pagan followers. And they begin to worship the God of Israel because Jesus is being Jesus. And they're bumping into him. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have had compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. Three days, 30,000 or so people following this guy around. It's amazing. And have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples said to him, Where should we have so much bread in the wilderness to fill so great of a multitude? Jesus said to them, How many loaves have you? They said, Seven, and a few little fishes. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fishes, gave thanks, broke them, gave them to the disciples. Are you catching this? He gave them to one group to minister to another group. He gave the loaves and fishes to the disciples. The disciples gave it to the multitudes. It's real important where you are on that screen in proximity to Jesus Christ because everybody gets something. The difference is in the purpose that you get that something for. You understand what I'm saying to you? Some of you do. Some of you are like deer in the headlights. What? What? It's okay. They did all eat and were filled, and they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full, and they that ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. I mean, this is a lot of people. For the most part, the multitudes are consumers. They take in the show, they partake of the food, and they go out of their way to do it. I mean, they had to really go out of their way to come out of the Decapolis to go into the backwoods of the Galilee to listen to this rabbi. These are individuals who go through a lot of time, trouble, travel, and expense to go to the big-name event, but they won't plug into and commit to the local church ministry. They are getters more than givers. But consumers are essential for any movement. They add momentum and drive 
to events. They add energy and excitement, and they swell the numbers and thus give an impression of success, which in turn encourages those committed to the work. What if we threw a party and no one showed up, right? It would be a bummer, right? What if you have an event and no one comes? You'd get really discouraged. You'd stop doing the work, right? It's important. The multitudes are important. I've often wondered about the whole idea of, you know, the poor you'll always have with you. You'd think when the kingdom comes, the poor would disappear. Everybody would get. Everybody would rise up to a new level, and the poor would just... But if the poor disappeared, the church would stop doing. If the multitudes faded away, we'd become ingrown. We'd be looking at our belly buttons all the time. Right? We need the multitudes. We need the poor. They help us be who we are and draw closer to Christ. Jesus saw something in the multitudes. In Matthew 9, 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying, saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this, they said, Yes, Lord, and their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man knows it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. And they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It has never been seen in Israel. There's never been anything like this. But the Pharisees said, he cast out devils through the prince of devils. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. So where is the harvest? It's in the multitudes. You see, he's directly speaking to the disciples about the multitudes. He's been moved with compassion. Look at these people. I mean, they're eating our bread. They're getting our fish. They're hearing good sermons from the mountaintop. I mean, all kinds of good things happening, but they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need something more. Jesus was seeing something in the multitudes that the multitudes were not seeing in themselves, and he had a whole other group of people getting ready to invest themselves in the multitude. That's the harvest field. No harvest field, guess what? No crop. No crop, no grain. No grain, no bread. No bread, you die. We need the multitude. We need a harvest field. In other words, we are to invest our time and energy into the multitudes, because this is where the next group emerges out from. Inside the multitudes, there is another group of individuals that the modern King James Version designates as the crowds. 
The crowds are a little more focused, a little more Christ-centric than the multitudes. Note their behavior in Matthew 13, 2. And great crowds were gathered together unto him. That is Jesus. They weren't gathered for the bread. They weren't there for the fish. They weren't there for the sermon or to see the miracles. Something had happened when they were hanging out in the multitudes. They realized all of these things are happening because he is on the scene. And they began to be attracted to him. Matthew fifteen thirty And great crowds came to him, having with them the lame and the blind, the dumb and the maimed, and many others. And they cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them so much so that the crowd wondered when they saw the dumb speak and the maimed uh, talk and the lame walk and the blind see, and they glorified the God of Israel. The crowds are coming to him. In Matthew 19, 2, and great crowds followed him. Another version says surrounded him. See, they were drawing closer and closer out of the multitudes. They were drawing closer. They were separating themselves from the fringe, from just being a consumer to wanting to be consumed by his presence. Matthew 21, 9, it says, And the crowds who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, as they began to connect with him, they began to realize who he was and why the things that were happening were happening because he was present. In Luke eleven twenty nine, but the crowds pressing on him. In Luke fourteen twenty five, the great crowds went with him. It's all about him for the crowds. The crowds are those individuals who are needy and maybe even start out as one of the multitude just trying to get a little something from the Lord to ease their hunger or pain. But something connects in the spirit. They seem to develop a hope, a hope of being healed enough to follow or to even give back a little something. Although they're not always sure what that might be or if they're able to pay the price, but some do and become the next group within the crowd called the crowd of disciples. These would include the 500 mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It says, Afterward, he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain until this day, but also some have fallen asleep. They would include the 120 from the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together was about 120. And the 72 from Luke 10, uh, 1 and verse 17, in Luke 10, 1, it says, And after these things, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he was about to go. He sent them before himself. They were part of the crowd that were drawn to him. They knew there was something special. Now they've received from him, and he's sending them out into the harvest field before him. It isn't so, so much now that they're getting an investment in. They've come to the place where they need to pour that investment out. These are the crowds of disciples. 
And in Luke 10, 17, it says, And the 72 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. You see, now they have begun to duplicate the ministry of Jesus Christ, both in word and in works. These are individuals who have made a decision to follow Christ. They have been exposed to him. They pray to him. They know the power of his name. They are willing to represent him in ministry to the church and to the world at large through evangelism, preaching, and power gifts such as healing and deliverance. Then there are the twelve, specifically called out by the Lord and separated for a more intimate level of ministry, as we read in the opening scriptures. The twelve, it says, he desired their company at his last Passover meal in Luke 22. When the hour came, he and the twelve apostles were reclined, and he said to them, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you, Before I suffer. They have come to the place where God Himself desires their company. Now can you can you process that? Can you fathom that? Can you think of yourself and being in a place where God is, you know, sitting on his throne, he's thinking, Oh, I you know, I wish I could just hang out with Jordan. It would be really awesome to be hanging out with I really desire to spend some time with him. Think that could happen for you? You know, when I went to Israel for 40 days on my sabbatical, I spent a lot of time in the, in the desert and in the wilderness and up on the mountains just, you know, hanging out. And the first three days were really tough. You know, you land in a foreign country, you're all alone, and you wonder, did I make a mistake? You know, I mean, wow, this is, I'm alone, you know, like really alone. So I'm down by, down by the Dead Sea at Qumran, and... I'd been there about three days, and I'm out in, out in the wilderness, and, and I say, all right, Lord, you know, what now? What now? Here I am, you know, just trying to connect with this thing. Why, why did I come over here? And uh, the Lord began to speak to my heart, and he, he showed me this big, huge, flat rock. It's as big as this platform area out in the middle of the wilderness, and it was about this high. And he said, I want you to climb up on that like an altar and present yourself to me as a living sacrifice. And so I went up there, I climbed up on the scene, I stretched myself out, and I began to just worship the Lord for three hours out in the wilderness all by myself. And at the end of that, he said, now, there will be times throughout your time here where I will ask you to read to me. And every time I ask you to read to me, I want you to read me a psalm. And I had a little pocket Bible I kept in my back pocket. It was the New Testament and the book of Psalms. And I'd be just hiking along or doing this or doing that, and all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord would say, read to me. And I'd sit down right where I was, and I'd open up the book of Psalms, and I'd start reading the Psalms to God. And his presence would just come. I mean, it was like spectacular. And he'd just hang out with me. And it was just awesome. He desired to hear my voice reading his words back to him. Who'd have ever thunk? Right? It was just amazing. Come to a place where God desires time with you. He desired their companionship and prayers during his agony in Luke 22. 
Going out according to his custom, he went to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he was at the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He kneeled down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping because of sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Falling away at this level is either by betrayal, like Judas, or by an act of willful denial, like Peter. Because there's an expected steadfastness and faithfulness that offers the Lord himself as the reward. Ezekiel presented a vision of this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 44. He says, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, says the Lord Jehovah. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. The sons of Zadok, all the other priests, were given lands, they were given uh, food, they were given everything they needed to sustain their ministry from the temple. The sons of Zadok got nothing. And they got everything. Because God himself was their reward. They got to minister to him exclusively. True worshipers, legitimate intercessors, the Mother Teresas of the world, the praying partner in a broken marriage, the pleading mother or grandmother of the alcoholic or drug addict, they capture his heart, and he captures theirs. Then there is the three. In Mark 9, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Does everyone know what that means? It means he put on himself as he is in heaven. They got to see him in the way he looks now. If you were to die or if you got taken up and you stood before his throne, you, saw, you would see what they saw then. He was so intimate with them. He was so connected to them and they to him that he just had to show them what he really is like. And so he transfigured, he put himself on, as it were, and revealed himself to them. He was transfigured before them. His clothing became shiny, exceedingly white as snow, such as no fuller on earth could whiten them. And Elijah and Moses were seen by them, and they were talking with Jesus. These are those who catch a glimpse of his glory, 
and are called to come up here. They are people of vision who have been knocked off their high horses of pride and self-assurance and desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Now, I got to tell you, that's a tough one for the American church. We love the power, but nobody wants the suffering. I got to tell you, the cross is intimately connected to the kingdom. You find a way to praise yourself through the things that you're suffering right now. Begin to worship him, give him praise and honor and glory that he's at work in you because you're suffering these things. And get into the fellowship of what God is about doing in your life. Because he'll take you through trials and testings, and then he'll show you magnificent things, and you'll understand why. So, where are you in all of this? Where am I in all of this? Maybe you're out on the fringe, just curious or needing to find something more than what you've found in the past. Maybe you've been coming to the vineyard for a little while now and you've had some experiences in worship or felt his presence near you. Listen, you could even be an undercover representative of some group opposed to God in the church like a witch or a warlock or a demonically inspired enemy of Christ. And I want to say this to you. Welcome. Welcome. We've been praying for you. We've been hoping you'd show up because if you come here, you might bump into Jesus. And if you bump into Jesus, you can never be the same again. I don't really care what you bring in the door. What I'm concerned with is what you take out onto the street. No bounds around this place. Come on in because I know if you touch the heart of Jesus and he touches your heart, life gets good. No matter where you are in all of this, this center set, I want to encourage you to come a little deeper. I want to encourage you to draw a little closer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, We welcome you in this place. From whatever vantage point or disadvantage point, we view you and your activities. We know you're here. We invite you to draw us closer to Jesus today. Bring us towards that center set this place of the cross, this place of the kingdom, this place where everything changes. We have eaten at your table. We have tasted your bread. We have seen your signs and wonders, and we have been awestruck. But we need you. We need you. So we invite you to come. I lift you up in this place, Lord Jesus. You are King of kings and you are the Lord. You are glorious and 
full of wonder, mercy, and majesty. Your compassion and mercy never end. You are so wonderful. Capture our hearts today, oh God. Draw us to the cross. Raise us up, oh God, in the power of your resurrection. And change us. Change us through the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in and somehow reach through to touch the hem of your garment. Heal us, O oh God. I'm going to ask the prayer team.